I'll be reading from Mark, starting in chapter 14, verse uh, 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against us as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man following him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And then they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And he stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to, again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Thank you, Rachel. So, um, if you can tell, I've got some soreness in my throat from a sickness I've had this week. And if I talk too much, uh, I'll start coughing. And that's good for you. It'll make a very short sermon today if that happens. And Seth will need to come up and finish the sermon, if you don't mind. <clears throat> I want to thank many of you who prayed for me last week as I was away in North Carolina preaching at the Shepherd's Church in Cary, North Carolina. It was a very um, almost embarrassing experience, to be honest. Um, they had security for me, like a security detail. So this is a church of like 3,000 people, and they had these guys with these, these things in their ear, and they were talking and, and things, and um, they had me wear a suit, and I do have a suit, I have one and I wore it, and they fed us, they fed me very well uh, the whole time, and um, the 
missions pastor there said that he wanted the missionary to be the hero. Now, we've served 20 years overseas, and he wanted to hear stories about that. And though I don't like that language very much, that missionaries are heroes, we have one hero, we definitely don't need to be disappointed by the rest of the fake ones. I, I understood what he was saying, and I said, well, I'll tell some stories. And um, they had this choir, it was like maybe 100 people and all their kids, and they had an orchestra with trombones and trumpets and everything, um, and violins, and they were just singing songs about world missions and everything, and um, they, had, they had me come out from behind the, the choir. So the choir was on these risers, and then he gave this big explanation about who I was, and I came out and people clapped. It was very embarrassing, like I said. And, um, and I preached, and they laughed at all my dumb jokes, uh, like, like they, I guess they were being very kind. And then at, when I finished preaching and prayed and walked out behind the choir again, they all stood up and clapped again. And it was just like the most, um, uh, well, the reason I tell you is not to say that I'm moving to North Carolina or that it was a something I deserve, the reason I tell you is because that reminded me just the smallest bit of how Jesus should have been received when he came to earth. He should have, Caiaphas the high priest, should have organized a welcome party for him, vacated his priestly seat, and invited Jesus to come and be the the new high priest, because that was in reality what he was. The scribes should have rushed to sit at his feet to write down that every word he spoke was the word of God. They had only read and memorized what the prophets had said, but here they had the word of God made flesh. The guards should have came with their swords and declared loyalty to him, putting their, their backs to him and protecting him from any adversary, the elders, the older men of Israel, they should have vacated all of their decision-making power to the ancient of days, who was before time began. Herod and Pontius Pilate, Tiberius, Julius, Caesar, Augustus himself should have vacated their seats of power and judgment to the judge of all the earth. They should have dressed him in fine clothes, and they should have brought as an offering to him every, every bit of culinary delight that they could have imagined. And the disciples that he chose and entered into Jerusalem with, including Peter and Judas, who we read about having betrayed him and denied him, should have finally found something that they valued more than their own lives, especially more than 30 pieces of silver. But to fulfill scripture, as Jesus said, God pulled back his sustaining grace and spirit that teaches truth. And he left men to their own choices in that garden of Gethsemane, and they rejected him. Instead of receiving him with great glory and with great admiration, and with cheers, they received him, the Bible says, with blows. So today, the title of this passage's sermon is The Good News Exchange, Part 1. 
you could say a subtitle is, before Jesus could fill our arms with the goodness of the resurrection, he needed to take out of our arms and onto himself our shame, our punishment, and our exclusion. So a few biblical illustrations to prove that one way the Bible talks about receiving Christ is to be dressed with new clothes, clean white clothes. But before we're dressed with new clothes, who gets dressed with new clothes without first washing and being clean? So before Jesus was going to wash us or to give us the new clothes and the new, all that he would give us, he had to remove from us the dirt. Another way is to say that if anyone would carry something, he first must put down what is in his hands to be able to receive it. And so I almost named the first, the, this first point of this, what, what we gave to Jesus. But in reality, this was not a gift exchange. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not like Christmas morning where Jesus and we sit there and we give him our dirty clothes and he gives us clean ones and we open our package and everybody's happy. It was him coming to us, not having been asked and actually being rejected and taking from us all of these things. It was none of ourselves. It was him coming to take from us before he could give to us. So we see in this passage that there are three environments and three things happen to Jesus. Three verbs happen in each of these environments. Um, for three different motivations, and they accomplish the removal from us of three very distinct things that we inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. So I'll tell you beforehand what it'll be, and then we'll look at it. Jesus took our shame in the garden. It's number one. We'll see that in verses 41 through 52. Jesus took our punishment in the courtroom, verses 53 through 65, and Jesus took our exclusion in the social circle, verses 66 through 72. So the first section, let's look at it together if you have your Bibles with me, if you have your Bibles with you. Um, if you don't, you probably have a cell phone. So you could go to Mark 14 with us and look in verse 53. Jesus had already, in verse 41 and 42, um, prepared his disciples for this moment. He said, it's enough, you can sleep on, the betrayer is coming, the Son of Man is to be betrayed, he says in verse 41. And then it says in verse 43 that immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one who I will kiss is the man, seize him, and lead him away under guard. So, we've, we see some details about this betrayal of Judas. His, one of the disciples of Jesus betrayed him. We see some details. First of all, that he betrayed him in a very shameful way, full of deceit. Kissing someone in that culture still in the Middle East today, is the way you greet a, a close friend. And so he betrayed him in a deceitful way, full of shame. And his people came with, with swords. You can see that 
here it says um, when he came in verse 45, he came to him, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him, <clears throat> and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Um, another, the, one of the other gospels tells us that that was Peter who did that, no surprise to us there, having seen Peter's impetuous attitude. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But this is where he says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. So they came to him in a shameful way. Judas greeted him in a shameful way. They came to him with swords and clubs. When Jesus was seen by John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you go to take a lamb, nobody brings a sword, right? You don't think that you're going to need to fight that lamb. And Jesus was a lamb. What you might, one um, theologian said the word huper in Greek is the most important word in the Bible. I think he was using hyperbole, but what he was saying is that this word huper means in our place. And so Jesus was a lamb that came in our place. Um, he was the second Adam. You know, the first Adam came to a garden. In Arabic, we call that garden Jannah. It's a place that God created for man to be perfectly happy and have all of his needs supplied. And when Jesus, the Lamb of God, the only second man who never had a father on this earth, was taken, he was taken in a garden. This place called Gethsemane was um, what we call, uh, the, the word in Arabic is not Jannah, it's Hadiqa, and it's like an orchard, or it's similar to where God created Adam and he placed him. So where God placed the first man in a garden, now he's placing the second Adam in a garden, and it's in this place that he was going to be taken. At that point that he says that in verse 50, it says, and they all left him and fled. It continues with an anecdote and says a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. Um, some a very old tradition tells us that that was Mark, the writer of this gospel. We don't know this for sure, but Mark was a younger man than the disciples, and it's very possible that they celebrated the Lord's Supper in Mark's home, that his father was the owner of that house. And so he came with the disciples um, wearing just this outer robe. And it says, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. If you have a pen and you write in your Bible, you might want to underline or circle that he ran away naked. Do we remember anybody else in a garden who was shamefully running away naked? I think we remember Adam and Eve in their sin realized that they were naked and they were ashamed for the first time. So that shame that they experienced was this repeating itself here in this garden scene. Um, is, I think there is maybe no stronger human experience than shame, than that deep sense of embarrassment that goes beyond embarrassment to shame. I remember as a child my recurring nightmare, I don't know if you guys have recurring nightmares, I had one 
Um, and it was that I woke up in bed, and my bed was in the middle of our church, and I was naked under the covers. And people would come around and try to talk to me and ask me why I'm not getting out of bed in this dream of mine. And I woke up with just this intense feeling of embarrassment and shame. Now, that's a child story. We all have experienced shame beyond that when we're exposed, when our sin and our weakness and our errors and our faults are exposed. So John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus and called him the Lamb of God, realized that he himself could do nothing about the shame. I read a poem this week that I wanted to share with you by a writer named John Shea, and he says this, I can denounce a king, but I cannot enthrone one. I can strip an idol of its power, but I cannot reveal the true God. I can wash the soul in sand, but I cannot dress it in white. I can devour the word of the Lord like wild honey, but I cannot lace his sandal. I can condemn sin, but I cannot bear it away. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This prophet, John the Baptist, in Arabic we call him Yehia. Like all the prophets, he noticed that we can point out sin, but no man born of Adam had the ability to carry and bear the results of sin, except this Lamb of God, which was Jesus. So we read this passage, and we see a very shameful experience that Jesus, that Jesus experienced, and there's shame all around this. So the story even of the boy running away in shame, naked, is meant to emphasize and remind us of the garden and remind us of the shame for which Jesus came. Second environment. So they led Jesus, and if you have your pen, you can underline or circle, to the high priest. So they, grabbing Jesus, arresting him, by himself, no disciples around, they took him by force, and he wasn't fighting. None of the swords and clubs were necessary. And they took him to the high priest. So now they're in a courtroom. Now this was not an official courtroom. They were not in the place where the Jewish uh, people would try criminals. They took them to the high priest's home. And this was a large home, of course, where all the high priests would live, everyone in succession, just like we have the White House. So this was a large home, and it kind of shows us the intimacy of how they're going to judge him. And they bring him into a courtroom that they have created. And it's, you can imagine a large open court in the middle, and some of the upper rooms and large rooms is where they take Jesus with his with these, um, it says that the high priest was there, and it says all of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. I was curious about exactly how many people that would be, and as a quorum, as a minimum, they had to have 25 of these scribes, chief priests, and elders there, and it was three distinct groups of Jewish rulers, but it was as many as over a hundred. So somewhere between, let's say, 50 and 100 people were gathered in this room with Jesus in the middle, in a courtroom, being judged. We see in this environment, so leaving the garden, coming to a courtroom, 
a rebellious act of condemning um, the maker of heaven and earth. And this, we're going to jump down to verse 55. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But there were found none. So it's important that all of the people came together, all of the chief priests and elders. Um, this signifies in each of these groups that this is uh, a complete rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people. And this reminds, this is to show us that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is not one dissenting vote in this group. They all came together to condemn Jesus. Further, it says that they didn't find a good witness against him, and so they, through deceit, were trying to uh, find different witnesses. It says, for many bore false witness against him in verse 56, but their testimony did not agree, and some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. This was a false statement. Jesus didn't say, I will destroy the temple. He said, the temple will be destroyed, and in three days I will rebuild it, and he was speaking of his body. But again, they didn't, nobody had actually heard him say that, so one testimony did not agree with another testimony, and it's very strict Jewish law that if more than one person does not, if you don't have two witnesses that agree, that you have to let the person go. And so in verse 59, or in verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst, and he asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it? that these men testify against you. And so not finding a good deceit, he tries to go directly at Jesus to catch him in his words. It's very interesting what Jesus' answer was. At this point, Jesus had nothing to say, didn't need to say anything, and he says this very short thing, this phrase that condemns him to death. He said, I am when he asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He gives him this vision. He could have used many different images of the Messiah in the Old Testament. There are many different ones. And he gives him this one, that you will see the, the Son of Man, it's another name for the Messiah, coming with power, standing at the right hand of power. This is a, a vision not of Jesus as a lamb, which he was coming in this place to be a lamb, but this was the Jesus who would come back as a lion, who would come back as the king. This is the one that they had come face to face with. And they had to decide, will it be his kingdom or theirs? And it was important that he gave them a view of Christ in his power. And then in verse 60, in response, if you look in verse 63, he says, And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. And you might want to circle that word. That's the charge for which they crucified Jesus because he said that he was the Messiah. Now you might wonder, why wasn't it obvious to them? that he was the Messiah, and why would it be blasphemy if he, if he actually was? Well, they had already determined that he wasn't. So they had a presupposition when they came to Jesus, he's not the son of the blessed, he's not the Messiah, and so if he says he is, it's blasphemy. Many people still come to Jesus that way today. 
not open to receive him, but determining that he is not the one who should rule their lives as king of kings. And when they reject him, they're rejecting him because they've already decided that he is not to be the king of their lives. And so they said he was uh, guilty of blasphemy, and he asked all of the people, you can imagine the scribes, the elders, and the priests, he says, what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And this is the verb that happened in the courtroom. In the garden, he was betrayed, and in the courtroom, he was condemned. Why was he condemned? Because of their love for power. Because they desired their kingdom and not his kingdom. And then you might say the hit or the punch heard around the world, and not only around the world, but through all of the centuries. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him and say to him, prophesy. What they were saying, Matthew tells us, is that they were, they were covering his face so he couldn't see who it is, hitting him and saying, prophesy who just hit you or tell us who just hit you. If you're God, you should know who hit you. And he doesn't answer them. And it says here that the guards received him with blows. They should have received him with honor, and they received him with blows. So this is a shocking thing for us. I think it should be. It's difficult to imagine these people hitting in the face and spitting. In the, if, if I brought one of you down here and illustrated it by spitting in your face, everybody would be immediately nervous and freaking out. And this was Jesus, the Messiah, and they spit in his face. And they covered his face and they laughed and they hit him. They received him with blows. And we think that's horrible. And it is. What the Lord is telling us, though, is that all sin, every slight to God's word, and every choice to go against his kingdom, and to go against who he is, is that rebellion in the face of God, as if we had spit in God's face and received him with blows. Rebellion, then, is against the sovereign role of God in our lives. It is a very difficult thing, but I wonder if you could imagine with me that the last time you failed under the temptation of a sin, and, and, and they come in all different types, that this was a blow in the face of God and a spit of rebellion in his face. As you say, this is my kingdom, this is my seat, you don't belong. John Piper, uh, one of my favorite preachers, said this very powerful quote, and he said it in his John Piper way, which is a whole lot more expressive than I can manage it, so I just thought I would just quote it. He said, the death of Jesus is the thunderclap of this truth. No sin is ever merely passed over, none. It will be paid for in hell or it will be paid for on the cross. No quarreling with God's word, no testing of God's patience ever goes unpunished, ever. This is a very important idea to have of our sin because we so easily dismiss our sin as 
a, an easy, just as a weakness I have, or as my favorite addiction, or something I deserve, or me just defending myself, or me just living in this fallen world the way it is, and we have all of the ways we reason it away. But when Jesus was condemned in that courtroom, and they commenced the passion, the suffering of Christ, every blow and every spit was not just of those men, but was of all humanity since, since the garden until today, including yours and mine. So it was when he was in that courtroom, he was taking from our hands not just our shame, but he was taking our punishment because that was what we deserved. We deserved that sort of treatment. He took our guilt and our punishment out of our hands. Let's look at the third environment. It says in verse 66 that Peter was below in the courtyard. And it says a little later that he was warming himself around a fire. So you imagine this place where there's soldiers and where there's servants and they're waiting for the decision to come from upstairs and they're downstairs in this courtyard and they're in the society, they're in the circle of society where people are. I think the importance of this fire is that he was warming himself here and as long as you're accepted in society then you're able to warm yourself and you're able to get those needs met that society provides. And so Peter is here warming himself by this fire down in this courtyard. And it says that this servant girl, one of the high priests, of one of the high priests came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you were also with the Nazarene Jesus. Now, Peter had followed Jesus when he entered into the, court, the uh, high priest's compound. And she had no doubt seen him from a distance and knew that he didn't belong with the rest of them. She'd never seen him before. And um, she was definitely an ornery young lady. And she said, you were with him. And he says, uh, he denied it. He said, I, don't, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And this is a very common way of just saying, I, have, I don't even know what you're saying. Uh, you're, talking, you're talking gibberish. You're babbling. No idea. You're, you're probably crazy. And he quickly got himself out of that environment. He got up and it says he went to the gateway and the rooster crowed and the servant girl saw him again and began again to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. This girl is following him, bugging him, but more than bugging, she's trying to out him in front of everybody. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. So, once bold Peter is now afraid of a girl, a young servant girl, he was now operating on his own. That's what last time we preached, I preached in the first part of this passage, and we asked the question, why did all of his disciples desert him? Why was there not one man, manly man, found among them who would stand up? Pardon my gender-specific uh, mention there. But why wasn't one courageous man among the twelve? And I really think the, 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 there's, there's a few different possibilities, but I really think the reason is because in God's sovereignty, because the Son of Man, Jesus, had to be denied by his disciples, the Holy Spirit pulled back his power and sustaining grace in their lives, and they were on their own. And a once bold Peter, when he was with Jesus, so bold and full of energy, 
was now completely on his own and crumbled in front of a little servant girl and said, I don't know what you're talking about. And it's amazing what he said here in verse 71. He began to invoke a curse on himself. If you want to underline or circle that, I did in my Bible, to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. Maybe his curse sounded something like this, I swear on my own life, I did not know this man. If I am lying, let me be damned forever. He was trying all he could to convince them to not grab him at that moment because he knew if he were to be grabbed along with Jesus, he would meet the same fate. And to save himself, to save his skin, he, he proclaimed a curse upon himself. Now, how many of you have ever known somebody that had an actual curse proclaimed on them? Anybody? Do you know anybody like that? That somebody has spoken a curse to them and that curse followed them for years? We knew a young lady years ago in our apartment building in Morocco, and she had heard a curse spoken against her by her potential sister-in-law that didn't actually end up marrying her brother because she broke up that marriage, and her, sister, her potential sister-in-law said to her, may Allah curse you and you never get married. Years later, she had experienced three failed engagements and was sure that this woman's curse had stuck on her. And she did all she could to get rid of this curse. She bought clothes and gave them to the, we call the sihar, the person who does, you know, counter-cursing in Morocco and she brought she bought expensive shoes and brought it to this person and gifts of cash and made different gifts and potions that included cat's teeth and that included um, I don't know all sorts of different hairs from different animals and skins of lizards and she did all she could to try to get this curse off of her and this is something that no man once he is cursed by God with any potion or incantation can get the curse off. Every person in sin, every son of Adam, the Bible tells us, is under a curse because of our sin. Now, it's not another human that's put a curse on us. It's not somebody that's spoken a curse to us, but it is a, a curse nonetheless because of our sin. And Jesus, in that social circle, took the curse by being denied by everyone. He was cursed. He was left alone and excluded from society. No friend stuck with him, and he was excluded from the city. They took Jesus out of Jerusalem, a picture of taking him out of the place of protection and out of the place of blessing. They took him outside of the city where they would crucify him, and it was a picture of his exclusion from the people and the blessings of God. He was taking upon himself the curse that you and I belong, uh, should, that you and I have on ourselves. So a curse, just for simple definition, is that is that thing that no matter what good is going in my life now will end and will turn in destruction. A blessing is the opposite. No matter what is going bad in my life, God will turn it around for good for me. This is what God did for us in Christ. He took our curse and he gave us a blessing. He gave us the blessing that tells us that no matter what is going on and all of the suffering that you're experiencing will be turned around 
by his sovereign hand for good for you. But without someone taking out of our hands the curse, then we cannot receive the blessing. So, we approach the world with our fists up, protecting ourselves, don't we? We approach God this way, protecting ourselves, protecting the soft spots, because we don't want them to see our shame and our guilt and this feeling that we're cursed. In the end, in the end it's going to turn out bad for us. And we don't want people to see that, and we try to, we try to prove ourselves to be blessed and smart and good. But the reality is that um, the longer you live, the more you become acquainted with your inability to get rid of the shame and the guilt and the curse. And the way you must come to Jesus is the way we could call the application of the cross. And that is the way he came to us with his arms outstretched, we come to him to receive. Because as long as you hold on to your shame and your guilt and your curse, then he can't take it from you in order to give to you reconciliation, restoration, and a blessing. So the first part of the good news, the first part of the exchange, is that Jesus had to suffer and he had to die because he did it in our place. To receive the good gifts of the resurrection from Jesus, you must first open your arms. Your shame that you are hiding from everyone, your guilt that you work so hard to deny, and your curse, the feeling of impending doom. And you have to lay that at the feet of Jesus. It is of utmost importance that Jesus had to suffer and he had to die. Otherwise, when he came to reign, all we would experience is his wrath and his judgment as rebels. And so before he's coming back and Jesus the Messiah will return, before he returns, he came the first time to make friends of rebels, to take away from them their shame and their guilt, and there's a third one, their curse. He came to take that out of our hands. And this is really good news. We're not going to get to the part of Jesus as Lord until in three weeks. Um, we're going to look at two weeks from now, we'll see the crucifixion of Christ three weeks from now, we'll celebrate together Easter. And in the last chapter of Mark, when we celebrate Easter, we'll talk about what we receive by receiving Jesus as Lord. But before you can receive Jesus as Lord, you have to receive him as Savior. You have to receive him as Savior of your soul before you can let him be Lord of your life. Maybe you've never done that. Today, you can open your arms to Jesus who suffered for you. And if you have received Jesus as Savior, um, there are two sides to that, to receiving Jesus as Savior. And I'll illustrate them with two sides of the cross. As the wood stretches on, horizontally on the cross, we think about the two, let's say, sides of Jesus as our Savior. First of all, he saves, he saves us, he saves the self. He saves me. So some of us have a tendency to continue to beat ourselves up and to feel bad about our sin and about our failures because we think maybe some amount of suffering that I do will somehow redeem me. We continue to try to work even in churches to try to 
think that if I can do enough, that maybe he'll be finally pleased with me. To receive Jesus as Savior means that you don't need, actually you cannot suffer enough for your sins to ever atone for them. Only he could do that, which frees you completely. Then now you don't need to suffer anymore. You can receive his total and complete forgiveness. And if somebody points out your shame and your guilt, and somebody points out your curse, and somebody in a word of hatred and anger and unkindness says things about those things, you can calmly and surely know that those things won't stick because they've already been taken out of your hands. Jesus came to the garden, and he came to the courtroom, and he came to society in those three environments to take away those things. So that insecurity that we feel no self-worth and for it we hide ourselves, or those feelings of guilt for the things we've done in the past or the ways we've failed, and the fear concerning our future, the anxiety that we experience um, because we're afraid that maybe things won't work out for us. We've already, if you give to, if you have, if you're a follower of Jesus and you have given your life to Jesus, then he has already taken away from you your curse and he has blessed you. And there is no longer a reason to feel anxiety. There is no longer a reason to feel no self-worth because he's taken away that shame. And there's no reason to feel that guilt that so hinders us because of our past. In fact, he has freed us from all those things. Not only on the one side of self, but also the other side. Now he overflows that onto others that we can offer to them freely that they are released in Jesus from their guilt, from their shame, and from their curse. There's a few areas where that's so important that where, where, where um, a failure to do that creates divorce between a husband and wife when they, won't, when they won't allow Jesus not only to be the savior of them, but to be the savior of their spouse. Estrangement when a parent or, or child or friend or, or whatever, because you know, it, he, he reconciles us, and, but if we don't allow him to, then we find that we have estranged and broken relationships. Um, racism, when we judge others and try to heap shame upon them because potentially and often because of the own, our own shame that we feel. Or the social, social isola isolation, somebody who's sitting outside of the community somebody who's new to the community, they don't speak the language of the community, or they don't follow the rules of the community, and they seem like they are on the outside, Jesus empowers us to go to the outside and to reach the outsider. If it's that person in your classroom, if you're at college or in high school who looks like the misfit or the outsider and you want to stay away from them because touching the social outsider makes you a social outsider, but a person transformed by Jesus can go to the social outsider because Jesus has come to us and taken away our exclusion outside of society. And so to receive Jesus as, as, as Lord, and we're going to talk about that in a few weeks, I want to worship him first as Savior. I want to take a moment in song, and we're going to sing a couple songs. The first is Christ, my hope in life and death. And the second, we're going to repeat the first song we sang, You've Already Won. The reason is because we're in this very heavy chapter in Mark, right? And in Mark, this very heavy chapter where Jesus is getting beaten, 
Some of you are suffering and you're going through very difficult times right now. And we can look through Mark 14 because we know what happened, the resurrection. And in all of the sufferings for those who are in Christ, you're in the battle right now. There are various things going on in our congregation and, and many things that I have no idea about. But battles that you're going through, battles of your heart, battle with your own sin, battles at home and in your work and in your school. And we can sing this song joyfully even when we're in the middle of that fight. Because in Christ, because he won, we have already won. Even in Mark 14, Mark 16 is still true, and it's coming. And I want to worship the Lord as Savior today, uh, together with you all in song and in taking the Lord's Supper. And Joe's going to come to do that. Joe, would you come and lead us in a moment of reflection about that?